learned something new recently, and that is that there's a whole field of study of the species that are willing to inhabit the rubble and wastelands that we humans leave in our wake. From wars, from riots, from earthquakes. I kept seeing the name of this woman, Sarah Coles, an American landscape architect who found beauty in these plants and meaning. But she turned out to be quite difficult to track down. Sarah Coles started to feel mythic to me, this towering punk-style goddess who didn't need the native and the rare, but was happy with what was, with whatever came. She wrote beautifully about waste areas that demonstrated their own ecological logic without aesthetic meddling. The more I hunted, the more I started to see references to projects she was doing in the nation of Georgia, a country that used to be part of the Soviet Union. But to be honest, it was a country that I knew little about. I thought that she'd been commissioned to do work there, but that she probably still had her life in the U.S. She'd gone to the California College of the Arts in San Francisco for undergrad. I'd picked up that much. She had her master's in landscape architecture from Harvard. She didn't seem like someone who could disappear. And indeed, she had not. She hadn't vanished in the slightest. I'd just been too parochial in all my assumptions. Welcome to The Shape of the World. I'm Jill Riddell. Hi, my name's Sarah Coles. I'm the director of Ruderal, which is a landscape architecture studio in Tbilisi, Georgia. Sarah, I'm so glad you can be here on The Shape of the World. Thank you. Sarah, when I first ran across your work, I got really excited. I know you started out your life and career in the United States, and even though you're living and working in the nation of Georgia, which feels very far away from where I am in the Midwest, I still see so many applications for your work and so many ways that your ideas can be applied in American cities. So we're going to talk today about lots of things if you're up for it. But I wonder, just to start out, how do you describe in general what it is that you're up to, what it is you're trying to do? My mission is to create community, to create culture, and to really push hard on accepted ideas, whether those are accepted ideas about what we want our ecology to look like, what we want our cities to look like, not accepting the status quo and being creative and how we go about responding to the limitations. Well, that certainly came across when I read your writing and your academic work. I'm looking forward to our talk today about what it means to put this into practice but let's go ahead and start with the name of your landscape architecture firm, Ruderal. That word was actually new to me before I learned of your work. And now, honestly, now that I know it, I feel as if when I'm walking around a city, I find myself thinking about Ruderal all the time. I see it everywhere, not the word so much, but just the effect. So to begin, what's the basic definition of what makes a particular plant Ruderal? At its core, it's an ecological term. The word ruderal, it means the species that are adapted to disturbance. And it means species that are able to thrive in difficult circumstances. Like, for example, after fire or a flood or after concrete has been dumped on a chunk of land? Yeah, ruderal species, they have the ability to put down roots in compressed or compacted soil. They have the ability to withstand heat, salt, all these different forces that come into play in the city. What are some examples of ruderal plants, ones that our listeners might know well? And how, without even knowing that we're doing it, might we be engaging with a ruderal landscape on a daily basis? 
Well, many of them might be the ones that you're not permitted to plant. For example, a, <laughs> you know, a Norway maple or a tree of heaven, the Ailanthus altissima, those, those types of trees, we might call them kind of weedy. They're nitrogen fixing, so they're able to survive in poor soils, poplars. Cottonwood. Yeah, cottonwood. Anything that you see growing between the railroad and the edge of development, anything that's surviving there, goldenrod and mugwort, anything that gives you allergies, it's probably a ruderal species. So they're the kind of plants that if we notice them, we kind of look down on them. Yet they're doing important work for us, right? And what is that exactly? So when you think about an ecosystem... You have these first responders, which are, are the ruderal species. We think of them as weeds sometimes. We may not love them and care for them as much as we love our old growth forests, but the ruderal species make it possible and kind of prepare the ground for the longer lasting species. So they kind of, they do their work, they get things set up, you know, they might change the chemical composition of the soil or provide biomass. So when I, I learned about this term, I thought, that's a really interesting way to approach things. And how did you learn about the term? Where were you first exposed to it? I was exposed to the term when I was in my third year at Harvard Graduate School of Design and was learning about all of these species that are adapted to harsh urban conditions. In those years, there was a big focus on brownfields. What is a brownfield? A brownfield is any site that was previously used for industrial purposes. It could have been a chemical storage facility, a gas station. As America has deindustrialized, we have huge tracts of land of brownfields. And so some are redeveloped as shopping centers. Probably the least expensive way to remediate a brownfield is to put a parking lot on it. But in other cities, City leaders have seen the value of these landscapes that are within the city. Many cities have railroad parks, the old foundry park or something like that. Most of that initial research work in that field was developed in Germany. And I think that was learning about those projects was one of the things that really influenced me to pursue this career path. Yes, I noticed in some of your materials that you mentioned Herbert Sukop from Germany who, after World War II, did some pioneering thinking about ruderal species and sounded like he really became one of the first practitioners to consider and write about urban ecology. Can you tell me a little bit about that? The first studies in urban ecology and ruderal species were developed by the, an ecologist named Herb Sukop, who was working in Berlin. And on his way to work every day, he was observing the plants that were growing in the piles of rubble from aerial bombardment. And you get a kind of cosmopolitan type of flora, right, that isn't the same flora that you would find, say, in the suburbs or in more rural areas. And so he took very careful notes. He brought more people into the process, other scientists and neighbors, and they created this incredible catalog of the species that were emerging. And they call this trumaflora which is the flora of the trauma. Flora of the trauma. Wow, what a term. And you know, I hear that and see that and understand it, and I guess I even embrace it. It's so strong. But of course, ruderal vegetation is also the flora that's setting to work and doing something about land trauma. I don't want to 
stretch and say that the vegetation exists because it has a desire to heal our trauma after a war or a crime, but there is something optimistic about it all the same. I am looking here for this quote in something that you wrote. It's about how you described ruderal plants as, quote, unruly, tenacious, and opportunistic. They're metaphorically paradoxical, indexing catastrophe and abandonment, yet conversely representing resilience and renewal. And somewhere else you wrote that for you, works of ruderal aesthetics open up passages between art, landscape, architecture, and ecology and other disciplines. So I guess I'd love to hear more about what possibilities you glimpsed within that term ruderal when you learned it. I kind of took it to its metaphoric extremes. And so I was thinking about, you know, there's rural economies that spring up after disaster. So if you have a hurricane, right, and then immediately you've got people who are coming into that region to help rebuild houses, or there's people who are there to take away debris. And something I could add to that, that I think is very poetic about rural species is that they're always there. We don't see them. We don't know necessarily what's in the seed bank of the soil that's been underneath the concrete for 30 years or what's being carried on the wind. And so I love the idea that what is underneath the city is this intelligence, that if we just open things up and redirect energy, it will come to life. Yes. And I know you've helped to make that life happen in projects that you've led. I'm eager to talk to you about Arsenal Oasis, one of your recent works. But since it's in Belize, and many folks listening might not have been yet to the capital city of the Republic of Georgia, can you remind us of Georgia's general location and neighboring countries? So Georgia is located east of Turkey. It's south of Russia, north of Armenia. And it's west of Azerbaijan. And it's on an isthmus that connects the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. So it's an area of intense geological dynamics, big, big mountains, uh, shifting earth, geothermal activity. And it has incredible biodiversity. And that's one of the things that has really attracted me to relocating here and building a business is that we had so many different ecosystems, pockets that are completely rare. You can be an hour or two away from the desert. You can be in subtropical, great changes in elevation, moisture, so many different microclimates. And with those microclimates, culturally, different practices. You might be in the high mountain area where primarily people are grazing sheep. You could be in the tea plantation. You might be in a more alpine forest. You might have plains where there are nuts and fruits. And then, of course, Georgia's most famous for its grapes and its tradition of winemaking. So wherever you are, the architecture, the landscape practices really reflect how the people have really taken the resources of the climate, of the soil, of the orientation, and adapted the landscape to fully exploit and perfect their environment. It sounds like such a dramatic place. <laughs> Incredibly dramatic. People are, people are dramatic, too. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, how did you first 
come to Georgia? Were you there to work on a specific project or had you just heard about it in the abstract and just were obsessed with getting there someday? I first came to Georgia as an artist with a program that's called Artisterium, which was a kind of biennial that brought artists together from all over the world to do exhibitions. And my project was about a brownfield in Columbus, Ohio, where I was a professor at the Knowlton School at Ohio State University. And I just got hooked. It was a combination of the people, the time in my life. I had just lost my brother in an accident. And I was really looking for some new perspective, a kind of way that after a tragic loss, one kind of sheds, you know, many layers that perhaps weren't working. So for me, it was to leave behind a life that I had established in San Francisco. I had moved to Ohio, and Ohio is flat. Ohio is boring. But in some ways, it was really like a calm and safe place to be. And when I came to Georgia, it was, you know, the polar opposite of that. One other reason I ended up in Georgia is that in the mid-90s, my father worked for USAID in Poland. He worked in Ukraine, and he worked in Russia. And at the end, he worked in Georgia, and he couldn't stop talking about it. He was also enchanted. He met some great people. He traveled to different places. He loved the wine. He loved the food. And he kept coming back and telling us these fantastic stories. And it was almost like kind of fairy tale. At the time, we couldn't, we weren't, you know, able to visit. I was in college then. So when my art history professor, Lydia Matthews, invited me to participate in Artisterium, I just jumped. I jumped right at the chance. And what do you remember from your first day there or that first week? Were there certain things that startled you? Absolutely. The first thing was the dry ring. It's quite chaotic. There's a particular particular way Georgians approach the road. And at the same time as you're in all this intense traffic, you're in a city that doesn't look like any city you've ever been in. It's this mix of the East and West architecture. Every neighborhood is very different. There's Soviet neighborhoods. There are German neighborhoods. There are more traditional Georgian-Armenian neighborhoods with big overhanging balconies. It's quite dramatic when you come into the city. You just hand down this road down towards the river, and then there's this massive mountain called Tatsminda, which means holy mountain, that is the backdrop to the city. And was it love at first sight, or did you feel frightened by it? Or what was your emotional state at the time? Emotional state was very tired after uh, probably 18 hours of being in transit and being worried about getting my installation done for the upcoming exhibition and the opening And I remember spending the first three days just putting the work together and finally getting a chance to have a traditional Georgian supra, which is an endless meal, long table, lots of toasting. And then rather than go with the group on a sightseeing tour the next day, a friend of mine picked me up in his beat up Lada, took me outside of the city to a house that's called the Cloud Library. A sort of art studio and small biodynamic farm run by an artist named Mamuka Japaridze. And here was this beautiful house and garden with paintings overlooking the city, high above, even above the clouds. And I think that hospitality kidnapping was just the thing that I needed. You know, I'm sorry about your brother, but also sort of 
I don't know. There's something about after going through something very difficult like that, that seeing something totally brand new reminds you what the earth has to offer. Absolutely. My my brother was a big traveler. He never really wanted to settle down into a particular career. He tried a number of different things, but was always exploring, even up till his accident. He was killed in an avalanche while backcountry skiing in California. And I think up until that point, I was, I was a bit more focused on career and work and stay in one place and kind of dig in. You know, after his accident, I, I just, I said, chuck all that. There's so much more to see in the world. And it was the first time I felt like that I was seeing in color again. Wow. I'm just thinking about how dramatic that change must have been for you. I mean, you had a what sounds like a pretty plum appointment at Ohio State and the kind of thing that people aspire to and the idea of chucking that and then going to the cloud library and seeing, ah, so there is this in the world. <laughs> Perhaps I shall devote my life to this. <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly wasn't straight away, but it was definitely a kind of crack in the facade. And so I came back, met more people, met architects, met artists, started to explore the country, go to the high mountains, go to the an area that I absolutely adore, the Borchomi region, which has these dense forests and incredible air. And so I began studying in earnest the idea of how do you organize a country around the idea of health? How do you organize work? so that people can have a time to rest and recuperate and go to these resorts. This is where Sarah Coles got into one of her big ideas that's fired up my imagination for what might be possible for large cities. Sarah highlights the importance of what she calls big health landscapes. In brief, the country that Sarah lives in, Georgia, was part of the Soviet Union for about 70 years. And before it was annexed by the USSR in 1922, the nation of Georgia already had what Sarah calls great health landscapes. And lots of people knew this and cherished those areas. These were places where folks would travel to come to heal, to breathe the special healthy air of that landscape, or to sit in the healing mud, or to bask in a mineral spring. When the Soviet Union took over Georgia, it built resorts, these places that were part playground, part spa, part medical facility, where cures were given. Many were in those traditional healing regions. They became places where Soviet workers and party faithfuls were allowed, actually sort of assigned, to go each year for a vacation, for renewal. The Borjomi region that Sarah mentioned is only one of several that's in Georgia. Sarah has been studying each of them, seeking to understand how transportation systems were organized around these big health landscapes, how the resorts were oriented to catch the light or particular air flows. And she says that the Soviet architects really did seem to take a rather bioclimatic approach to site planning, which is interesting to Sarah as a landscape architect. And then there's the whole idea of how everything within these big health landscapes fits itself into the greater organism of the Soviet Union. So you mentioned that term to me, big health landscapes. 
What did that mean for the Soviet Union? Was the Soviet Union a place that was formed around this idea of health and well-being? The different health resorts are scattered around areas within the Soviet Union and Georgia because of its variety of waters, its variety of climates, really had a concentration of those. It's always been a place of partying, basically partying (laughs) and recovering. Georgia had, you know, the best produce, it had the best wine, best cheese, and the resorts were organized on different levels. Some were for different labor unions. But the idea was that every year you got a certain number of weeks to go to the resort that was for your collective. So you had all the doctors, you know, it was often like a strict regime, right? It wasn't necessarily the vacation we're used to, but, you know, you might go there and, and take the cure. And you would take the cure, meaning that basically that you accepted the cure that you were given <laughs> rather than a, a process of self-exploration. Right, <laughs> right. It was definitely prescriptive. For example, in the, the resort I just stayed at in Nunisi, this is a spa that's centered around a spring that has that has waters that are known to cure dermatological conditions. Again, this is how, you know, how to take a cure without topical steroids or other types of creams and potions. Mm-hmm. Immersing yourself in the waters that have mm-hmm. are some kind of curative power. Yeah, or just taking two weeks off away from everything. Yeah. And <laughs> could could also be a great rebalancing. Yeah. So yeah, it was they took it really seriously. You know, one thing that I often got my hair to stand on end in the U.S. was the idea of these sort of like small healing landscapes. You know, the very least that our health insurance system could do for us is to give us a room with a view of a garden, for example, right. so that, you know, you would get better quicker and they could get you out of the hospital faster. And how tiny those spots are, right, in a hospital. Yeah. That oftentimes it's simply a courtyard with limited access and a lot of pavement and maybe a container garden that has lavender in it. That's, you described it exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah, maybe the nurses really would just like to smoke there right. on their break. But yeah, a sort of paucity of experience and and really just, you think about the potential that landscapes have to to cure us inside and out. And what is the potential of landscapes to heal? It's myriad, the potential, whether it's just being outside of your normal sensory overload of your phone, music, loud noises, the ability to be in another soundscape, the ability to stop and focus. For example, the other day I was hiking with my dog and came across this beautiful field of salvia, which is kind of sage, big purple spiky flowers, and then orange butterflies everywhere. One of the things that I did after resigning my position as a professor was to do what I called neurological rehabilitation through painting and drawing. And, you know, I'd spent so many years looking at screens, teaching students to look carefully at screens and look at the work they were doing. And I felt like, you know, my eyes had in a way atrophied. And I just spent, you know, three months driving around Georgia with my dog and my art supplies and just sitting in one place observing how light changed, you know, over a field, over 
time, how the shadows and clouds, how those patterns evolved. And just looking and looking deeply and, you know, seeking the color that I might not otherwise see. Do you think a landscape has the potential not only to heal an individual, but to heal community? Absolutely. If it if a community is coming together to care for that landscape, to bring input into it, to decide what that landscape should be, how it should perform, who it should serve. I've been thinking about terms of incarceration, how to move past the place where we are of mass incarceration, of great inequality in that system. There are so many spaces that are kind of dead ends in terms of the evolution of thought because they're reified spaces. It's the courtroom, it's the police station, it's the jail. There is not a space where we can get together and talk about alternatives. There might be this kind of garden of reconciliation or restitution where we could have other types of dialogues about how we deal with crime and punishment, how we could evolve other ideas. This is kind of the power of gardens. And so I've been thinking about creating that type of a space and having people plant trees and bring in that idea of time into the garden and dialogue. And what would that be like if that was part of the American justice system where an equivalent amount of resources and land and space and built environment was going toward that reconciliation and those places of restitution as we're going to the very pragmatic parts of punishment, courts, police stations? What if that were just a given that of course you're going to invest in those things alongside those things. It doesn't mean that we don't need a court system. It doesn't mean that we don't need a police station. But in addition to that, we also have these spaces. Yeah, I think we don't have yet the language for what the spaces of restorative justice might look like. We have these models, as I mentioned before, or these spaces of you know negotiation rooms or you know other types of enclosed spaces. And, and my thought was... If instead of a roof and walls, um, an enclosure that we had, you know, we had the expanse, we had the sky and we had the earth to define and create that space, you know, if the, the space is created through the boundary of trees, for example, rather than walls and trees evolving through time, that that, that might somehow help move our conversations forward that I feel like are incredibly stuck I think that's a really profound idea and a really interesting one. But I like your idea of having something that's outdoors as opposed to the indoor space. I'm thinking of also about like Daniel Kahneman's idea about making decisions that are hot and cold, that we make decisions in an urgent situation. And that's kind of what the courts are like and the places of punishment and such. Those are places of emergency and urgency, but also having a place where the cooler parts of our brains can make decisions and make them in communion with others and providing a spot and time and place for that as well, that we don't only think about justice when we're mad about something. I love that idea of creating these cool spaces or taking out the sense of urgency to you know, make a decision to punish. Sarah Coles has been playing with serious ideas for some time. One example is a project she did for the BLC Architectural Biennial. 
She describes the kinds of projects she does, which are a mixture of art, land, change, with the architectural term intervention. So before she describes the actual project, let's get up to speed on language. And what do you mean when you describe something that you might do with a landscape as an intervention? What is an intervention for you? A landscape intervention is a way to frame the work that we do, whether that's in an existing landscape, whether that's between a building and the property line, because we don't have a building envelope. We have the sky, we have the earth, uh, we have the air, and the term intervention allows us to be precise about where, where our work begins and ends. And tell us about the Arsenal Oasis, your recent intervention in Belize. It's a brownfield, and it's the site of an old Russian army base. It's a big, huge open field, and a few people use it for walking dogs and running. The first time I visited, I, I saw these trees growing in this otherwise kind of hot, dry, desert condition. There was a broken water main that had created a kind of spontaneous wetland. And we saw that the water, it was shooting up high into the air and creating this beautiful rainbow. And I thought, well, let's, maybe we could guide it into creating another small ecosystem or pond. The first notion we had was to somehow work with this large platform of concrete that had once been the foundation for perhaps a warehouse or a barracks. We first thought we would hire someone with a bobcat, which is a small tractor. And we thought maybe we can create some channels in this large concrete slab or otherwise. And, and that operator took a look at the train and he said, no way. <laughs> in the space of a few hours, we found somebody else with a full-size excavator. This is another one of the great things about the city of Tbilisi is that you sometimes really don't have to ask permission to do things. You can work for quite a while um, <laughs> undisturbed with an excavator in the middle of the city, creating a, perhaps a pond. Or perhaps art and healing with an excavator. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so yeah, we hired a guy to just drive onto the site and begin to remove the concrete. And from there, we created a few different impoundments. And that was in the fall of 2020. And now it's spring 2021. And we have a healthy population of tadpoles and frogs in those ponds and so many birds there and turtles. It's a very, very kind of punk rock grunge space. Um, lots of broken up concrete. <laughs> very low budget project. Everything really done by hand except the work of that excavator. So, you know, it's maybe some kind of a, <laughs> a Japanese garden under different terms. <laughs> when, you, when you lifted up the concrete slabs and exposed the bare soil for the first time in who knows how many years. How did that feel? It felt like a great release because for all the years I was teaching students and encouraging them to think this way about the urban environment, to think this way about working with systems rather than pictures. This was a moment where it was really happening. And what's the interaction now of people with this place? It's been interesting to see how people are using it. 
young people in the neighborhood have taken these um, round cast pavers that we sort of left in a pile and they they roll them around and rearrange them in different ways. The neighbors really like it. They're happy that people are there doing positive things and not dumping garbage. There's a big fear in that neighborhood that this huge tract of land will be, you know, fully privatized. It'll be developed like any other dense neighborhood in the city. So for us, it's a way to you know, put that diagram of a park onto that land to bring focus to that piece of land and its potential as a big open space. To bring attention to it through action, through an intervention. Through an intervention. And uh, did you come up with the name Arsenal Oasis? I assume nobody was calling it an oasis before your intervention. I think we stumbled into that name. The site has always been called Arsenal, even in maps from the 19th century. I think Arsenal Oasis just, of course, is it's a place of, you know, water and life among dry, <laughs> dry, desiccated conditions. I mean, an arsenal is a place where weapons are stored, right? Mm-hmm. So I love the oxymoron of arsenal with Oasis. Arsenal is the idea that you're keeping something for future use. For me, it kind of loops back to the idea of that latent potential of the rural species that are underneath the city. And all it takes is a broken water main to set those systems into motion. Sarah, do you have a life philosophy or a basic tenet or something that you repeat to yourself to keep yourself going? My life philosophy is to say yes to everything, to every opportunity. And I found that that kind of willingness to take risks and chances also brings people along that have a similar philosophy. And that's one of the really wonderful things that's happened in terms of starting the studio here is that it's attracted people who have that same outlook on life. And it's incredible to work with a fearless people who are really dedicated to the work and exploring the potential of this area. And given that you've been steeped in this field of landscape architecture in this very specific discipline, and given the projects that you have worked on and experienced, what is it that you know or see in the world that you're surprised the rest of us simply don't see or don't know? Like, how has your profession and the artistic medium of landscape affected you and your worldview? I think I wish people could see what the potential is if we just set aside a little bit of surplus. Within any given system, like the way that the Arsenal site is a product of a little bit of surplus in a system that delivers water to a neighborhood, for example. We so finely tune infrastructures, the world around us to the nth degree. But what if we just put a little bit extra in there as a kind of wild card and see where that extra space, that extra energy, those extra materials might go? Right. Or that extra space, right? Maybe not building right up to the lot line if you're building a house, mm -hmm. but to have a little bit of surplus, a little bit of spare, a little bit of a little bit more air. We talk a lot in our work in developing what I call the fertile section in the city, creating that pocket of fertility, that place to put roots down. Again, it's a kind of wild card space. We don't necessarily know what that's going to bring into action, but expanding that fertile section, deepening it, 
I think we could have a much richer urban environment if we thought that way. If you could change one thing about the world, the physical world, the land, the water, the air, what would it be? Oh, this is a great question. I think more volcanoes. (laughs) I don't know what I was expecting you to say, but it really wasn't more volcanoes. I can't wait to find out why (laughs) we ought to have more of them. I love it. I just actually just came back uh, two days ago from Portland, which is surrounded by these incredible volcanoes I just was shocked by. So tell me, why should we have more volcanoes? The amount of energy that's in the earth, uh, you know, geothermal energy, the we just don't know anything about what's inside the earth. And for me, I wish we had more portals into that unknown. A beautiful thing about Georgia is, you know, every town has a spring and people build these wonderful sort of sculptures around them. And often there, there's a portrait of somebody, if you know, an elder in the village, or maybe it was somebody who died young. And those springs are named after someone. And you go there and you, you know, you see their name carved into the stone. And I love the idea of celebrating how different cultures sanctify that moment of upwelling from the earth. I'm thinking about as you're talking about all these springs being named for different people. Has there been a landscape or have you done any sort of intervention with your brother spirit in mind? It's funny that we sort of tie back to that because we we scattered his ashes at Mount Hood in Oregon, which is a volcano. Ah, which I was just there looking at that mountain. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad to know that. That's a really nice circle. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. And it's been so great to have a time to think big about these different themes we've talked about today. For me, too. I'm going to carry that forward in my work with the show and the work I'm doing in Chicago. Thank you. Thank you. This is Jill Riddell, and I hope this conversation with Sarah Coles makes you reconsider the plants growing in the cracks of sidewalks and managing to bloom in trashy lots. Give them a little pat when you pass one next time. This is our final show of our spring season. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back with new shows next spring, starting on Earth Day for sure. And we're also considering adding a short season this fall as well. So look for that. And sign up for our newsletter so you can be kept in the loop. And as always, if you want to help us out a little bit, it would be great to add a review for us on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it. Or send a link to our show to someone that you think would like it. The Shape of the World is about nature, cities, and people, and the world we share. It's a production of the Office of Modern Composition, a business that creates compositions and fosters composers. If you have a story to tell, the Office of Modern Composition can help. They can go all DIY and teach you how to write and produce a story yourself, or they'll do the whole thing for you. Either way, you can end up with a permanent archival piece that presents your ideas and experiences. The Shape of the World is produced in the vital, vigorous, and beautiful metropolis of Chicago in the prairie state of Illinois. The Shape of the World is a completely carbon-neutral endeavor, thanks to reductions that we made and from a carbon offset purchased from Tradewater. If you're interested in eliminating your carbon footprint, go to the website tradewater.us. The Shape of the World's audio producer is Andy Bosnick, whom I want to say a special thank you to for some new innovations this season. The theme music is composed and performed by the fabulous Brad Wood. 
We've had a fabulous intern this season who has totally crushed our Instagram. So thank you so much to Ian Wenzel for increasing our followers by a factor of 10. And thank you to Serena Swalm for doing many of the beautiful illustrations that ran on our Instagram feed. If you haven't seen those, do check it out. And the biggest thank you to our guest, Sarah Coles, for being on our show.